Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. In 1985, the latest story in Michael King published being Pākehā, a book which fathoms what it is to be a non-Māori New Zealander. Three decades on, the accomplished Chinese New Zealand writer, reviewer, actor and director Helene Wong has published her memoir, Being Chinese, A New Zealander's Story, which explores the experience of being of Chinese descent, being both part of this place, but also set apart. She presents the Michael King Lecture for 2016, entitled Inside Outside, in this special session. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you. I see so many of my mates here. This is fantastic. Kia ora tato. Ni hao. Ni mai, everyone. It's my very great honour and pleasure to be presenting this lecture in memory of historian Michael King. Michael and I were contemporaries at Victoria University in the second half of the 1960s. You can do your arithmetic now. <laughs> but our paths never crossed. He was a BMOC big man on campus, a writer for the student newspaper Salient, debater at Forum, and a student politician on the Students' Association executive. I was but a lowly fresher, and all I ever wrote for Salient was record reviews. So it wasn't until 2002 that I met him, when we sat next to each other on a writer's consultative committee. In conversation, he was delighted to point out that I lived close to where he had lived in Auckland as a child. Such small degrees of separation are no surprise to anyone in this island nation of ours. I think they're part of our social glue and give us our sense of belonging. Michael, in his more personal work, wrote about that sense of belonging. In being Pākehā, his exposure to the lives and culture of indigenous Māori led to his contemplation of what it means to be a non-Māori New Zealander. And in being Pākehā now, he considered whether non-Māori New Zealanders had a place in this country. He argued that they do. Born, born and raised here, they have no other home. They may have ancestral roots elsewhere, but New Zealand is where they feel they belong, which is where I come in. 105 years ago, in 1911, my mother, Dolly Chin Ting, was born in Wellington. 100 years ago, my father, Wong Weiying, disembarked from the SS Manuka in that same city. He had journeyed from his village in southern China via Hong Kong and Sydney. He was eight years old. And in 1949, I was born in Taihapi. That, I think above all, justifies calling myself a New Zealander. <laughs> I acknowledge the echo of Michael in the title of my book, Being Chinese, A New Zealander's Story. It seemed appropriate if I was to add my voice to the conversation he had begun about being non-Māori and identifying this place as home. And I did want to add my voice, because over the years, despite the length of time my family and many others like mine have lived here, being Chinese has often meant being told this is not our home. The title of this lecture, Inside, Outside, refers to the ambivalence many New Zealand Chinese feel about themselves and their place here. 
There are varying degrees to this ambivalence. Most of the time, going about our daily lives, we feel very much a part of the mainstream society, accepted as friends and colleagues, and increasingly through marriage and partnerships as family. But every now and then, incidents occur when we're forcefully reminded that we're not as accepted as we think. Then the ambivalence kicks in. We realize that we're viewed as both part of, yet apart from, the mainstream. This isn't exclusive to Chinese. Other minority cultures who've made their home here have had similar experiences. But the Chinese experience has been so long-standing that it's worth examining for what it might tell us about ourselves and about the future. I hear two conversations going on these days. The first is one speaker enthusing about how wonderful it is that her son is at a school where he's mixing with and making friends among so many different ethnicities. The second is another speaker complaining about how her son's school is being overrun by Asians. What's interesting is that these two views have been in existence in some form since 1865, when the first group of about a dozen Chinese arrived in Dunedin, invited to work on the goldfields by that city's Chamber of Commerce. In central Otago and on the west coast, and then through to the early 20th century, the white community was in two minds about Chinese miners. The negative view can be found in the newspapers of the day. Headlines were a competition in creative alliteration with titles such as Mongol Menace, <laughs> Chow Curse, and Yellow Yahoo. And my all-time favorite, Silly Salacious Slut Snared by the Slimy Slit Eyes. There were movements formed to oppose Chinese immigration, the Anti-Chinese Association, the Anti-Asiatic League, and the White New Zealand League. And political cartoonists invariably depicted Chinese in ways that stoked prejudice and fear. Still they come. This is from 1905. It uses a favorite metaphor for Chinese as invading the country. Here, it's leaping over a wall. Others use tidal waves or menacing shadows. The buck-toothed, pigtailed, ape-like and clownish image was always used. This particular cartoon comments on politicians' efforts to add further restrictions to immigration. The original poll tax of £10, introduced in 1881, had been raised in 1896 to £100, but still they come. So in the caption, Sir Joseph Ward, on the right, says to his Prime Minister, Richard John Seddon, Look, Dick, it's up to us to do something. King Dick replies, Yes, by Jove, the wall's got to go up a bit higher. If a hundred-pound poll tax won't keep the yellow agony out, then we'll have to slap on another hundred. Two years later, in 1907, Joe Ward is now Prime Minister himself having succeeded Seddon on his death. He's shown here, again on the right, goading W.A. Lloyd, an outspoken advocate of the anti-Chinese movement, into prodding public opinion against yet another buck-toothed fellow. 
And here's another, the same year, with the Chinese depicted as an octopus, ensnaring New Zealand, represented by a Maori woman, perhaps referring to the repeated accusations of Chinese corrupting our girls. Similar messages were sent in other cartoons, showing Chinese as slithering dragons creeping their way into the country. By 1920, the pigtail was gone, reflecting the fact that Chinese had been cutting off their queues after 1911. That was when China had become a republic after overthrowing the Manchus, to whom the queue was a symbol of submission. But the clownish image remains, along with the notion of the Chow menace. There's nothing here, for example, that acknowledges the fact that between 1914 and 1919. 55 New Zealand-born Chinese had enlisted to fight for New Zealand, and did so in Gallipoli, Egypt, and the Western Front. One of the first to be killed on Gallipoli on 25th of April 1915 was a Chinese New Zealander by the name of James George Patterson. The positive view, whose evidence is also on the public record, can be found in parliamentary debates. Over the many pieces of legislation designed to restrict Chinese immigration, members sympathetic to Chinese spoke of their quiet, temperate natures <laughs> and their industrious, law-abiding qualities. These pieces of legislation, generally copied from our colonial cousins in Australia and Canada, introduced the poll tax and its increase, quotas, an English reading test. A permit system with thumb and fingerprinting, and the removal of the right to naturalisation. It wasn't until the Second World War, when New Zealand woke up to the fact that the fighting in China was actually holding the line against the Japanese and stopping them from invading the South Pacific and us, that the tide of opinion began to turn. China, and by extension the Chinese here, started to be seen as brave allies. As a gesture toward this, the government opened the door temporarily to the wives and children of men resident here. When World War II ended and China was still unstable from the civil war between the nationalists and the communists, these refugees, along with any of their New Zealand-born children, were allowed to stay permanently. And so began a Chinese community proper, stabilised by family life and the putting down of roots. In cities and country towns, Maori and white New Zealanders began to get used to seeing Chinese families among them. Not so many as to be a threat, but enough to take the laundry to, buy vegetables from, or go to school with. I was born soon after this. My country town was Utiku, just a few kilometres south of Taihapi. We moved to Lower Hutt soon after, and I grew up there at a time when perceptions of Chinese were still, at best, disdainful, but they were slowly changing. We were still dogged by shouts of "Ching Chong" in the street, but the poll tax had gone 40 years after Australia, 20 years after Canada, along with the quotas, the language tests, and the fingerprinting. Naturalisation was reintroduced in 1951, and one of my Napier cousins, Mabel Sang. Became the first Chinese national to be naturalised. When she was asked by the New Zealand listener, plug, <laughs> why she wanted to be a New Zealander, 
She replied that in her work and in social activities outside, she has been treated and made to feel like any other New Zealander. Attitudes had indeed changed. We Chinese did our part in this by assiduously going along with the prevailing belief that assimilation was the best way of becoming accepted into white mainstream New Zealand. We young ones learned to keep a low profile, became model students and adopted Western ways so as to be invisible and avoid being targeted as different. It just made life easier if we were Chinese in private. And it worked. In the 50s and 60s, I was the only Chinese at primary school and college, so not seen as a threat of impending invasion. I easily and willingly submerged myself in European culture. As the years passed, the racist taunts lessened. I was on the inside now. Except for once, in 1965, when I discovered on returning from a short visit to Australia, I was meant to have something called a re-entry permit. I didn't know I had to get permission to come home. It was a hangover from the restrictions of the past when Chinese leaving temporarily had to apply for certificates so they could come back into the country and not have to pay the poll tax again. But it was, it was a reminder that in the official quarters, I was still outside. By the 1970s, at university, in my early working years in the public service, I was back inside. I got married to a man of Maori ancestry, and despite parental nervousness about a mixed marriage, the sky didn't fall. In fact, I was so inside that in 1978, when I was appointed as social policy advisor to Prime Minister Robert Muldoon, journalists weren't at all interested in the fact that I was Chinese. Their questions were all about my being a woman and infiltrating what up till then had been an all-male preserve. The Prime Minister himself never referred to my race or indeed my gender and always treated me with courtesy. In fact, I never really knew what he thought of me until I came across the letter he wrote in which he referred to me as tough. <laughs> Coming from him, I was rather pleased. <laughs> as for my colleagues, only once did they refer to my Chineseness. On Friday afternoons, the advisory group would meet the PM in his office to report on the issues we'd been dealing with. At my very first meeting, there were two others who were also newbies. We were all suffering from performance anxiety. Having heard tales from the old hands that there was always the possibility of a bruising head-to-head -head debate with the PM. I got through my report unscathed then sat back to calm my nerves while the discussion moved on to the trade-weighted index, inflation rates and structural unemployment. Over a drink afterwards, celebrating our relief at having got through it, the other two newbies began complaining. And there's bloody Helene sitting there looking inscrutable while our knees are shaking. <laughs> well, what they didn't know was that I was thinking to myself, trade-weighted index? What's that? My inscrutable look was actually an attempt to conceal my terror at my ignorance of matters economic. The people I dealt with in the course of the job didn't seem bothered by my Chineseness either. Some were momentarily startled on first meeting me, since I was using my husband's name, Knox, 
as my surname at the time, and I freely confess the reason for that was to rid myself of the telltale Chinese name. But they quickly recovered. And there was one incident which I think of fondly as true acceptance. One of my main tasks was to liaise with the Maori gangs of the time, and I became known as the gang lady. I recall a drinking session with them at the Otahuhu pub when I commented admiringly on their new T-shirt design, black on orange with a raised black power fist. Abe, the leader of the gang chapter, instantly ordered the wearer of the shirt to take it off and give it to me. <laughs> and I still have it. <laughs> Perhaps, though, the strongest pointer to my being inside at this time was in my other life as an actor. I had been theatre mad from a young age, singing, dancing, acting, and pantomimes and plays. At Victoria University, I took part in satirical reviews with comedy luminaries such as John Clarke, who was developing his Fred Dagg at the time, Roger Hall, and Dave Smith. But although you could imagine an audience going along with a Chinese-looking pantomime cat, or accepting all comers in sketch comedy, straight theatre was another matter. And yet, for a time, audiences seemed to be colorblind. In two plays, both dramas, I was cast in roles ostensibly for a white European, one of which was a French princess. The fact that I was Chinese was not, to my knowledge, commented on by audiences, nor in the reviews. Any complacency I might have felt about being truly inside after this, however, was undermined in 1980. Not by any racist taunt or act, but from within myself. That was the year I visited China for the first time and the ancestral village of my father. What happened there powerfully raised questions about my identity. Was I Chinese? Was I a New Zealander? I write in detail about this in the book because the search for answers was to occupy me for the next three decades as I tried to fathom how much of me was inside and how much outside. This time it wasn't about how I was perceived by society around me, but how I perceived myself. The question shadowed me through the 1980s as I took the opportunity to study Chinese history and culture while living in the United States where my husband Colin was on a scholarship to Harvard. On our travels, I would be drawn to visit the Chinatowns and the Asian museums. I think it was because I'd never had such access to the culture at home. Then, when I returned home to work in theatre and film, I found myself working as script and casting consultant in the first feature film about Chinese in New Zealand, Leon Nabi's Illustrious Energy. It introduced me to early Chinese New Zealand history, but as far as I knew, my family had not been gold miners. I could relate only so far. I did, however, meet on set a man who came from my father's village, and he filled in just enough details about it to entice me into wanting to know more. But it was, as I think it is for most New Zealanders, the travelling in other countries and cultures, in my case, Europe, the United States and China, that identified for me the characteristics and quality of being a New Zealander. And it confirmed that I had them more than I had the characteristics and qualities of a Chinese. I felt far more inside the New Zealand culture than the Chinese. 
Then came the shock of the 90s. Society made it loud and clear that no, as far as it was concerned, I was outside again. Radical changes in immigration policy in the late 80s led to the arrival of new Chinese immigrants from Hong Kong, Taiwan and China. Not in trickles as in previous years, when we opened our doors a crack to let in refugees from Southeast Asia, or students, or highly qualified professionals to come and fill occupations where we had a shortage of skills. This time, it was in the hundreds, then the thousands, more than doubling the population who identified as Asian in the five years between the censuses of 1986 and 1991 to 40,000. Although that was only around 1% of the total population at the time, the increase was seen as cause for alarm, especially in Auckland, where the majority were settling and to which I had moved from Wellington in 1988. The racial abuse came back onto the street. Asian drivers, many unused to driving, and Auckland drivers, became the targets of road rage. Second and third generation New Zealand Chinese were being yelled at to go back home. I might have worked for a prime minister, represented the country overseas and gone drinking with black power in Otahu, but I was not, in the eyes of some, a New Zealander. I was just a chink. The days of colour blindness were over. There were strong and disturbing echoes of the racist invective of the past. It wasn't as virulent, and the papers probably couldn't have got away with slimy slit eyes again. But in 1993, we got this. I think, yes. <laughs> A double-page spread in the Auckland suburban newspaper Eastern Courier. It was a contemporary replay of a headline from 1894, a century earlier, in a publication called, bizarrely, Fair Play, The Chinky Invasion. Both were designed to scare up fears of what Richard Seddon had called in 1880, these hordes landing on our shores, and what Winston Peters referred to later as a flood of immigrants. And just as in the past the poll tax was raised to try to keep the hordes out, so too was the threshold raised for the investment funds required of the new business immigrants. It's not really surprising that when large numbers of visibly different people begin to appear on the street, move into neighbourhoods and set up businesses with signs the locals can't read, that there's a feeling of being invaded. Even long-settled Chinese struggled with it, partly because these new Chinese seem so, well, Chinese and partly because they were angry with them for having revived the racism they thought had disappeared. Forgotten all this, however, was that the immigration policy that brought this about had been targeted not just at Asia, but at all countries that were not our traditional sources. In the past, traditional sources had been the white countries of mainly the United Kingdom and some in Europe. So those immigrants who came in under the new policy and looked white for example, white South Africans, or those who came in small numbers, excited little attention. It was the Chinese, in their numbers and so visible, who copped the flak. And old settlers like me copped it as collateral damage. The effect of the controversy and prejudice didn't go ignored in the wider society. 
And in my field of film and television, there slowly began to appear interest in projects on Asian topics and themes. I found myself being asked for help and advice on them, even though I protested I wasn't an expert on Asian, let alone Chinese culture. Nevertheless, I ended up making a documentary about the Chinese for a series called Immigrant Nation. And it was in doing research for this and other projects that I began to learn more about our history and how we had been treated and perceived. One of the things I noticed about how we were perceived was that it was almost always based on assumptions. Now, as someone wise once said, assumptions are the mother of all stuff-ups. We've all experienced making mistakes from jumping to conclusions too fast. And so it is with people making assumptions about us from our Chinese appearance or indeed our Chinese-sounding surnames and behaving negatively toward us. We're bad drivers, we speak poor English, we've got too much money and we're driving up the property market. Assumptions are fed by stereotypes. They're all around us in casual conversation, in advertising, and we make jokes with them, but they're also a component of racism. When I was asked to teach a class on Chinese images in the media, it was interesting to see just how long-lived and tenacious some of those stereotypes were, especially in cinema and on television. The mustachioed Fu Manchu, Mandarin with sinister intent, the servile cooks and rickshaw boys, the gamblers and the gangsters, the opium dealers and drug addicts, all fear-inducing or clownish or contemptible. That's why it was almost inevitable there'd be a negative reaction to the new wave of immigrants. They revived the dormant fears that came from those old stereotypes of inscrutable evil, inferiority and criminality. There was one set of stereotypes I was particularly well acquainted with, the ones relating to the Chinese woman. I used to see it in movies when I was growing up. Variations on the prostitute, the sexy exotic schema, or the imperious and dangerous dowager. Or the submissive wife, the scolding wife, and the interfering mother-in-law. Later, in my work as an actor, I would encounter these repeatedly when auditioning for roles. It seemed that scriptwriters had blinkers on and couldn't see past these received images to the real Chinese women and men around them. And casting agents and directors, for their part, couldn't think outside the box and suggest that hmm, perhaps a Chinese could play, say, a lawyer or a checkout operator or any number of roles they played in real life. To illustrate this much better than I can tell it, I'd like to show you a short film by Auckland filmmaker Roseanne Liang. Roseanne started out as an actor before she became a director and appears to have had similar experiences to mine.
Melanie Shaw. Kayleigh Hang. Lisa Fong. How are you? Hi, how are you? Yeah, fine, thanks. You're available for the shoot dates? Yes, I am. You can put that down. You can drop that down. And if I can see your profile. And the other side. Other side. Back to the front. And back to me. And back to the front. Holding there. That's great. Great. Okay, thanks. Okay, you ready? And action. He's crashing. Charge to 300. Clear. Come on, Andy, please. Charge to 360. Clear. Give me 360 again. That's it. Charge again. Come on, Andy. I need you here. I need you here. And cut. Wow, very good. Let's try something a little bit different this time. Being Chinese, she's quite restrained and reserved emotionally. So maybe you could hold back a little bit more this time. Okay, yeah, less. Yeah, less of the more just, okay? Right, um, just one question. Yeah. Sorry, my character is married to Andy. Yes. And Andy's dying. Yes. Okay. Okay, great. Here we go, and holding back, and... And action. I love maths. And I'm really good at science. But my favourite subject of all? Yum time lollipops. Mmm, yum time. And cut. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was really good. This time, could we try it a little more playful with the lollipop? Sure, like, yay, party, yum time! Yeah, nah, I mean, like, for a, um, for a more mature audience. You know what I mean? Your character's supposed to oh, be yeah. this Japanese assassin. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So it's, yeah, you know, like, precise. Okay. So this time, we'll really play with this one, okay? Okay. Okay? Right. And action. <laughs> the sacred scroll is mine now, red rogue. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. How? <laughs> and he fires one back at you. Bam! Dodge them. Jump. Jump higher. Okay, spin around. Spin around. Spinning around. Spinning kick. Okay, and an uppercut. Uppercut. And an uppercut. An uppercut. Up. Great. Um, it's more, you know, like, really vicious, like, um, like Bruce Lee. Like that. You know, like Bruce Lee, you know, uh, Kung Fu. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you where you're from? Auckland. Wellington. Palmerston North. <laughs> no, no, no. What I mean is, um, what's your, what's your ancestry? I'm Chinese. Malaysian. Oh, my parents are from Singapore. Right then you would understand about grades, right? So it's as if you have worked your ass off to get to where you are now, and if this guy dies, it'd be like getting a B. And you have never had a B, right? So you would be pissed off, right? Pissed off, because my husband dying is like getting a B. Yeah, yeah, let's try it like that. So you want me to lick it before I put it in my mouth? Yes. Um, blowing the lollipop? If you like. Okay. I'm sorry? Sorry? 
Listen, if there's something you're not comfortable with, you can just, you know, not do it. Oh, no. It's, I just... It's, uh... it's just called acting. Um, we don't have to do anything that makes you uncomfortable. That's okay. No, 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 no. I want to do it. Are you sure? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry. No worries. Okay. Ready and action. Mm. That's good. <laughs> Give me 360 again. I say charge again, damn it. Okay, now you're a windmill of fire. You're a windmill of fire. That's it. Now gun <laughs> kick. Little X. Little X smiling. Enjoying it. Come on, Andy. I need you here. I need you here. <laughs> Yum time. And cut. That was beautiful. Really good. Okay, it is a hot, sultry night. Okay, we're looking for raw, sexy confidence. You are hot, Lucy Liu's, and you're fighting between yourselves, trying to get this guy's attention. All right, let's give it a try. Stand by, and action. Hey, sexy, hey, sexy boy. Hustle, hustle. You're looking so Gang cut. Guys, I need lots of energy, okay? I want you to think um, Dirty Bangkok, Saigon. Uh, Saki Saki, me love you long time. You know, uh, full metal jacket. Um, oh, sorry. Um, so we're wartime Vietnamese hookers? Yeah, look, if, if you want, that, that's cool. Just, it's all fun, okay? It's fun. <laughs> right, and this time, uh, can you do an Asian accent too? Sorry, um, like. <laughs> like, um, I'm not an actor, but like. Uh, oh, dear, uh, oh. Be real horny. Ah, oh, five dollars. Sake, sake. Me rough your wrong time. But, you know, more Asian than that, okay? Okay, let's try again. Standing by. Action. Wow, wow! Me so horny. Me love you long time. Like Tiger in heat. Close together, you're in competition with each other. Me better than her, she has speech impediment. She no can distinguish L and R sounds. At least my grandma better than you, ho. Oh. I rub you wrong time all night wrong with proper prona. Okay, great. Oh, Stay no, in no, character. Me love you long time, me do best perpetuation Asian stereotypes. You see, ah, ching chong kong, nikiwa, jura, write the briefs, I just fill them. I'm just doing my job. <laughs> oh, okay, that's it, right? If you can't even take this seriously, you're free to go. And can I suggest that next time you think seriously about what it is that you want, 
because there are plenty of girls right out there who can't wait to get this work. Have a nice day. And your sad old shoes That even your toes are singing the blues You've been staring so long Down at your feet You've forgotten that love is a two-way street great? But apart from a glimmering of potential sisterly resistance There's no resolution to the problem posed in the film And that still reflects the reality today Roseanne made this in 2008 Not much has changed here or in the rest of the world for example, the Academy Awards ceremony earlier this year used Asian racial stereotypes to get laughs, causing sharp criticism from Asian American Academy members and a tepid response from the Academy. Even more recently, the casting of white American actress Scarlett Johansson as the Japanese heroine in Ghost in the Shell, currently filming in Wellington, has been criticised as one more example of the recent Hollywood whitewashing of films by casting white stars in non-white roles, for example, in Gods of Egypt and Aloha. And earlier this year, I went to an audition too for the role of a madam of a brothel. Li Ming-Hu, who was in the film, was also there. We sighed and rolled our eyes at each other. The girl's got to eat. But when such stereotypes keep turning up repeatedly on screen or in print, it's no wonder perceptions and attitudes don't change. However, there were some benefits that came out of the 90s immigration. Besides creating work opportunities for me, the new Chinese presence made available to us parts of Chinese culture that we New Zealand Chinese would normally have to travel overseas for such as festivals, customs, and, of course, food items and cuisines other than our familiar Cantonese. The furor surrounding immigrants also brought a small, quiet change in the local Chinese community. We began to stand up and push back against the racism, something we hadn't done before in the old days of assimilation, and staying silent so we wouldn't be noticed. We wrote letters to the editor and made statements to the media. Our resistance ruffled the feathers of some among the older, more conservative and mostly male members of the community who publicly distanced themselves from the protests. I think they feared reprisals. But it felt good to break the silence and necessary if we were to ever get past those fears. By 2005, something else was happening. The first Bananas Conference took place, bringing together yellow on the outside, white on the inside Chinese to discuss the issues and experiences of being Chinese in New Zealand. It demonstrated a growing confidence to talk about such matters and encouraged an attitude 
that it was okay to be Chinese. For me personally, the migrants did me a favor by reminding me of my unfinished business of examining my Chinese self. That meant researching the family history, meeting with others who were engaged in similar research and happy to share it, poring over official registers and national archives, and finally sitting down with my mother so she could tell me her story. And that story was a treasure trove of vivid and detailed recall. It anchored my motivation when I came to write the book and ended up contributing the most to its chapters on family history. From all of these sources, a picture began to form of my ancestral origins, and I was astounded to discover they stretched back to the 12th century. Instead of floating untethered, I was most definitely connected to the culture. The evidence for it gave substance to my Chineseness, because no longer was that a vague concept. It had acquired a specificity with names, dates, and places. When some among the new migrants tagged us as not real Chinese, this ancestry was comforting knowledge. Meanwhile, back on the street, on talkback and talk shows, letters to the editor, and political meetings, the vilification continued well into the new century. I found it interesting how, after all those years of apparent acceptance, the racism had come flooding back with such intensity. What was it about Sinophobia that distinguished it from, say, homophobia or sexism? Gays, lesbians and feminists had made great strides by comparison when it came to shifting society's attitudes. So had Māori in educating us on the treaty and biculturalism. I could only speculate that because it was not the Chinese way to protest publicly or make demands, no one in mainstream society was alerted into thinking that Sinophobia deserved similar discussion. Thus, that fear and loathing was able to be stroked again in 2006 in the North and South story entitled Asian Angst, Is It Time to Send Some Back? And again, in 2016, it is still being stroked in the issue of foreign buyers of property. It comes with a large helping of hypocrisy. We blame the Chinese for driving up house prices at auction, but out the back, the sellers are rubbing their hands with glee. And we blame the Chinese because they're easy to spot at open days and auctions, whereas a white foreigner escapes notice. So who knows what the true picture is of who's buying? All of this, of course, fueled the writing of the book. I felt it was the one constructive thing I could do to try to counter the ignorance and stereotypes of racism, replace the silence that gives rise to those simplistic assumptions and images with real stories and real people. People ask me if I'm optimistic about the future, if I think the prejudice is lessening. My response would be, yeah, nah. I'm certain that if there were to be another visible wave of Asian-looking people in the future, still in some parts of society, the knee-jerk prejudice will be revived. It mightn't be as strong, just as the 90s version wasn't as extreme as in the previous century, but it would be there. Is it lessening? I really don't know. Every time I think things are calming down, or there haven't been any recent incidents reported in the news, or I haven't been shouted at for a while, Along comes something to jerk me out of that complacency. 
The Labour Party's Chinese-sounding names debacle of July last year over property buying, for example, and then, just over a month ago, six young Asian students being bashed to bleeding in Auckland, some in broad daylight. And I think, really? 150 years of Chinese settlement and we're still putting up with this? And when I say we, I mean all New Zealanders. I can see how Asian students just might be convenient, visible targets for disaffected youth, but senior political leaders still acting like the Richard Seddons and Joseph Wards of the past? Is this who we are? Is this who we want to be? And when I observe the rising nationalism in Europe and the United States, where immigrants and refugees are being blamed for economic ills, and the preferred solution of right-wing politicians is to build walls or fences to shut them out. Who can say with conviction something similar couldn't happen here? How much of our liberalism derives from the fact that we are an island at the bottom of the world? What if we began to feel fearful and insecure from, say, boatloads of refugees finally succeeding in making landfall on our coasts? So yes, there is still a hard core of racism in this country, and it's not only directed at people who look like me. Earlier this week, I listened to the mayor of New Plymouth, Andrew Judd, a Pākehā, talking to John Campbell on Checkpoint about the sustained hostile abuse he has had since campaigning for greater representation for Māori in Taranaki. It's still alive and well. As far as my own experiences are concerned, it's not all white male supremacists or boys leaning out of cars yelling insults for fun. My encounters have been with old and young, men and women from all social strata. Even if it's only the verbal abuse that's being dismissed these days as casual racism, the old contempt and disdain comes through loud and clear. Like the woman in the black SUV at my local supermarket, incensed that I wouldn't move my car so she could squeeze in behind and park illegally over a yellow line, who shouted, you people should learn how to drive. <laughs> but then there was also the episode when one evening I was backing out of a car park and kissed bumpers with a car also backing from the other side of the road. As we got out, I braced myself for another you people accusation. And she said, didn't you hear me tooting? I said, no, I hadn't. My husband said, well, if you saw us continuing to back, why didn't you stop? It was a beat. And then she said, but I've got a better car. <laughs> Which only goes to show that I, too, can make wrong assumptions. We are now the fourth most ethnically diverse society in the world, city in the world. That's worth pausing to reflect on. It's le in less than half a century, we've changed from a practicing monocultural country to a multicultural one. How do we deal with that? I do see signs of hope for the future. Schools boast of having 40 different ethnicities on their role, and their teachers enthusiastically plan uh, ways for students to share their cultures with each other, unlike my schooling, where such differences were never mentioned and thus implied to be unimportant. I see it in couples of different ethnicities holding hands in the street or wheeling their babies in pushchairs on the waterfront. I see it in sport and in business, 
and I see it in creative artists collaborating to make something new out of synthesizing each other's cultural expressions. In 2000, I went to Hong Kong to do a travel story. I met up with an old mate, Mort Wilson, of the 70s progressive rock band Stung. He'd moved there in the early 80s, fallen in love with a local, and was now running Stung Music Limited, a successful studio with international branches. He said, I might start writing a track here in Hong Kong, then I'll shoot the backing track down to Singapore to get mm, some Malay drummers, then up to Shanghai for a Mandarin voiceover with a Shanghai accent. <laughs> it's really a group thing, an extension of the band. We're like this whole extended family, and we know the world is in need of it. It can't hurt for people to have increased exposure to musical ideas from other cultures and races. Fast forward to the present. I watched a Chinese yuku clip the other day of a young man named Lawrence Larson playing guitar and singing in Mandarin. Lawrence, it seems, went to Maclean's College in Auckland, where he made many Asian friends. After graduating from university with a popular music degree and learning Mandarin, he's now developing a fan base and a career in China. He's working on finding a way of bringing the two countries together through music. 22 years ago, I was filming at Maclean's College for my documentary. The Asian presence in the student population was already obvious in the playground and classrooms. There were concerns. But Lawrence is now one of the beneficiaries of that presence, and if he finds a way of bringing our countries together, so too could New Zealand benefit. Mort and Lawrence, two New Zealand musicians of different generations who've transcended the old, received attitudes in the pursuit of their art. I'm also sensing a change in the speed of public response to prejudice, for example, in the Chinese names episode. Chinese and non-Chinese alike wasted little time in pointing out the absurdities of the Labour Party's argument, the clumsy use of the statistics, and the cynical manipulating of public opinion. And ordinary New Zealanders have more power to keep driving this change than they realise. When we discuss how to change attitudes and perceptions, we usually look to the classroom, opinion leaders and parental modelling. But I think one of the most effective ways is peer modelling. A couple of years ago, I was at a lunch party at a friend's house. At one point during the meal, a guest, who I didn't know, began sounding off about Asian drivers. The room froze. <laughs> then our hostess said in a low voice, Oh, that's not very good, is it? A pause. The conversation picked up again, a little subdued. I will be forever grateful to my hostess for keeping her presence of mind when the rest of us had been shocked into losing ours. Later, as I was leaving the party, the guest came after me and apologised. That rarely happens. It demonstrated that just as the approval of one's peers encourages one to continue a behaviour, the disapproval of one's peers is a powerful force in changing or stopping it. I want to say, however, that being both inside and outside is not all bad. Being outside expands the mind. It enables you to see that there's more than one way of thinking and doing, and from that comes an understanding of others. New Zealanders go outside when they travel, and unless they stay in a New Zealand bubble, they come back with experiences and ideas from other cultures that make them more open to the cultures here. Being outside puts you in a position to observe, listen, and learn. If you're a writer, 
or an artist of any kind, being outside is something you actively choose. And when you consider that some of those babies and pushchairs I mentioned before will have at least two cultural identities, and possibly more, depending on what their parents have brought to the mix, their global inside-outside perspective will be to our advantage, socially and economically, provided we, as a society, let them live with ease with all of those identities. Māori have a whakatauki, a proverb for this. Herangi tamatafaiti, herangata matafanui. The person with a narrow vision sees a narrow horizon. The person with a wide vision sees a wide horizon. And, of course, the Chinese have a similar proverb, though I won't inflict my bad Mandarin version of it on you. But it comes from a fable that goes like this. There was once a frog who lived in the bottom of a well. He was very happy there, gazing up at the circle of the sky above him. One day, a turtle popped his head over the edge of the well. The frog tried to persuade him to come down and enjoy his piece of paradise. The turtle tried, but got stuck. So instead, he described to the frog the grandeur of the sea that he came from. When the frog realized the smallness of his world, he got very depressed. Being inside, and only inside, makes for a narrow and monocultural view of the world. Someone asked me the other day if I felt Chinese had been included in the mainstream discussion of national identity. I have to say no, not in any specific sense. But for me, the issue is more about whether, in that discussion, we can learn from the experiences of Chinese in the last 150 years. What do they tell us about ourselves? What kind of people we are, what kind of people we would like to be? How do we want to treat each other in this increasingly diverse country? For that, we need to be both inside and outside the well. It requires acknowledging the shortcomings of a monocultural view, as well as having the courage to jump out of the well to gain a wider vision of the future. The answers to those questions will define not only who we are as a people, becoming part of our national identity, but also define our values. The value that the government seemed to be relying on in the 90s when it came to the new immigrants was our laid-backness, the she'll-be-right option, with the expectation that the community would happily absorb and cope with the changes. It might have been fine for our small annual quotas of refugees, but for the 90s influx, the government failed to think through the scale of the needs and provide appropriate resources to assist settlement. Furthermore, it failed to prepare us, the host community, for the numbers entering, and to recruit us to help soften the social impact. We had to scramble to help settlers with the basics, learn English, find schools, buy a car, learn to drive, buy a house, find out how to get the phone and power put on. So the transition was bumpy. It could have been done better. For future immigrants, and there will be more of those, because movement of peoples is now the global norm, there's no guarantee that it will be done better. I'd like to think, then, that other values and aspects of the New Zealand character might come in handy. When people are in trouble, our impulse is to help. If someone has a problem, we like to rally round to solve it, either with a bit of number eight wire or its equivalent in practical advice along with maybe a pizza and a few beers. We like to be friendly, 
and we value giving people a fair go. Those are the very qualities that can smooth out the bumps for a newcomer to a strange land. A friendly smile, an offer to help, advice, or an opportunity passed on. I have seen the eyes of new immigrants light up when this happens. The tension drops, the smile is returned. This is the person-to-person neighbourhood level of action, and it doesn't come from government incentives and theories and rhetoric. I hope I've given you a glimpse today of what it's been like to live in two cultures and negotiate a sometimes difficult path between them. I also hope my book will show that we Chinese share many experiences with you as New Zealanders and that we aren't as different as we might seem. Since I finished the book, there's been a flag referendum. The debate seemed to be all about the design. Which colour wear? Did it really look like a fern? Not so much about how the design might express our values. Yet values and attitudes are, I believe, as much a part of national identity as buzzy bees. We already have a couple that we're proud of. A fair go for everyone and the spirit of egalitarianism. We're not always consistent in our practice of them. We haven't granted certain immigrants a fair go, for example. And sometimes egalitarianism is interpreted to mean everybody the same, leading to our tall poppy syndrome, as well as intolerance of cultural difference. But they are the ones we like to quote. I suggest there are a couple of others we could add. They fit quite well with the fair go and egalitarianism. And I hope the New Zealand Chinese experience I've talked about this afternoon makes a strong argument for them. The first is inclusiveness. The second is respect for each other. And isn't it interesting how both of them suggest that sense of belonging? Thank you. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.